Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mountain Stories podcast. My name is Brent Olson. I'm one of the directors of the Institute for Mountain Research here at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. My goal, along with my co-director Jeff Nichols' goal with the Institute, is to connect people to mountains and to share the stories of the people who share that connection, to really think deeply about what it means to build a community as we live, work, and play in the mountains and in the shadows of them. As part of that mission this year, we've been really honored to collaborate with Dr. Shomei Pu on her project, Mountains and Stories, Building Community Among Asian Refugees and Immigrants. You can learn more about what this project is all about and listen to um, some pr previous conversations in older episodes of the podcast. In those episodes, you'll get a sense of the range of voices within the Asian community here in Salt Lake City and some of the work that's been going on as well as Dr. Pu's vision for the project and what her goals for collecting these stories are. So we've had a chance over the last six months to sit down with a bunch of people and hear the, their stories about the mountains, hear what the mountains mean for them and the work that they're doing to, uh, to build a community that links people to people and people to mountains. And we're excited to share another, another one of those conversations with you today. Our guest today is Jake Fitzsimanu. He is the leader and organizer of Yonghing Lion Dance Club, which is Utah's oldest Chinese lion dance performing group. I'll let him go into more details about himself and his stories. My name is Jake Fitzsimanu Jr. I've uh, been a resident of West Valley City for about 15 years, and I'm originally uh, from the Pacific. I was born in New Zealand, uh, grew up in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, uh, as well as here in Utah. And so um, I, I'm married. I've got two kids, uh, young kids. I serve on the city council uh, of West Valley City uh, out in my community and uh, among uh, many other activities I try to keep myself busy with. Uh, I'm the head coach uh, for the Zhenghing uh, Chinese Lion Dance Club uh, here in uh, the Salt Lake Valley. And I also work full-time for uh, the State Department of Health. Uh, right now I'm working as a program manager in the COVID-19 response. And uh, yeah, I try to keep myself busy for sure. Yeah, I think my uh, immigration story is very similar to uh, many other families whose parents wanted to bring them uh, to the United States uh, for uh, more educational opportunities, maybe social mobility and economic stability uh, as well. And so uh, I definitely tried to take advantage of that. I came here to Westminster College for my undergrad, uh, as well as for my master's degree. So it's fun to be back on campus uh, doing this project. Things are definitely changing, I see, outside with a lot of construction and other things going on. And so my dad spoke in the home uh, Samoan. He's from Samoa, and so that was uh, the language that I heard while I was in my mother's womb and, and the songs that were sung to me before I was even born. So even though English is my primary mode of communication today, uh, I'd say that Samoan is my the language that my heart speaks. I also uh, had a chance to serve a, a mission uh, as a missionary in Brazil. And so I speak Portuguese and Spanish because of that as well. With my involvement with uh, Chinese martial arts since I was very young, as well as lion dancing, uh, my grandmother speaks uh, Cantonese. And so I don't speak fluent Cantonese uh, or Hakka on my uh, grandfather's side. We definitely integrate that into the teaching of 
uh, the martial arts and into the lion dancing, um, teaching students how to count and the names of the different techniques and movements. So we do uh, retain and try to integrate as much uh, Cantonese as we can, but I'm unfortunately not as fluent as I would like to be. Lion dancing and, and Kung Fu have a very close uh, historical uh, connection from uh, as far back as we can tell. And so uh, with my introduction kind of as a family tradition at a very young age uh, with my brothers and others, uh, that was uh, definitely part of, of the upbringing. And it's interesting now being able to teach uh, my own daughters and my own nephews, nieces, and, and other uh, Asian Americans in the community trying to pass this art on that essentially is 13, 1400 years old. It's pretty, pretty neat to be part of that legacy. My first collection of memories have always been around uh, the Lunar New Year season. That was always an exciting time. We always got to travel and visit relatives, you know, the big reunion dinners, the, the firecrackers, the, just the vibrant colors and the delicious flavors and smells and uh, having family around. Uh, sometimes we would actually go to uh, San Francisco, Chinatown with my grandmother. You know, the community here, there is a, a fairly uh, large Asian American community here, but it's definitely not uh, the same dynamic as, you know, in, uh, I've, I've also visited Hong Kong where my grandmother's from. And so to be there or even San Francisco or New York, Chinatown, there's just a different dynamic. I think my earliest memory is probably uh, Chinese New Year celebrations in Honolulu, Chinatown. And that's really where I got to see uh, kids my age who were performing Gong Fu or performing Lion Dance and thinking, wow, I would really like to get into that one day. And and then learning that that's part of my family heritage as well was just a natural progression for me to to jump in and, and give it a try. My maternal grandmother is uh, came here from Hong Kong uh, and my maternal grandfather uh, his mother's from South Korea, from Busan, and his father is uh, actually from Guangzhou, from southern uh, Canton or, or Guangdong province. And when you see that that Asia slash Pacific, you know, demographic on a on a form or a, an application, I can check that, and I check all the boxes for Asia and Pacific. So. My wife is is from Brazil, and so her first language is Portuguese, uh, and I speak Portuguese, so we. We don't speak it, uh, I would say, enough that our kids have picked up on it. We have to really intentionally teach that to them. Unfortunately, we haven't provided a home where they're immersed in that. My kids are much more uh, fluent and conversant in Samoan uh, because that's, um, as I mentioned, the language that my heart speaks. And so when I speak to them, uh, often it's in that context. But I would say there's, on any given day in my house, you'll hear uh, English, Samoan, and Portuguese. Um, going on. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of uh, children's media produced in Samoan language. I know there's a lot more uh, in some other languages, um, Spanish and Portuguese included, but um, I think it's a really conscious effort that we have to make because my wife and I still default to English so often. That's just our primary communication. And so we do feel that it's a priority. We do feel we really want our children to be able to to communicate in both worlds and, and to uh, last year I took my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's 11, uh, down to Rio de Janeiro. It's her first time in Brazil, got to meet her great grandparents. And, you know, and it was interesting to see uh, how thrilled they were to see her pick up even on a couple of words or very basic phrases 
Um, but also a little frustrating to see that my daughter didn't understand the bulk of the conversations and really um, we want them to have those relationships and those family ties and language is so crucial to that. Oh, is it easy to switch between like different kinds of languages? I think depending on the context it is, if I'm surrounded by other people who are speaking Samoan, if we're at a cultural event or something like that, I feel like it is easier, but there's also more pressure because uh, people, if I'm speaking Samoan to folks who are not familiar with Samoan, they'll give me a pass on, you know, my American accent or some words that are mispronounced. Uh, but if I'm addressing uh, folks that uh, that know the language and and the formal registers and the different terms you use when you address certain people uh, versus other situations, uh, I definitely feel that pressure more, which sometimes means that I speak a little bit less and I kind of leave that to my father or to others who are more fluent in that. I think it makes it easier to think in that language um, for sure. And I experienced that in Brazil where uh, over the course of two years, I found myself uh, really starting to think in Portuguese rather than uh, hearing it, then translating it into English, and then formulating my response in English and translating that back into Portuguese. Um, that process, I felt, became really fluid and a lot more, uh, it became easier. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not dropped into those immersive situations, you know, here in Salt Lake as much as I would like to. So it is a code switching process that, yeah, takes conscious effort to do. Yeah. Um, is there a word like for mountain um, in Portuguese and in Samoan? Uh, and if you speak a little bit of Cantonese, what is the word for mountain? So in Cantonese, it's San. And in Portuguese, it's Montanha. And in Samoan, it's Maunga. Are there any like differences, nuanced differences in that meaning? So how does each language conceptualize the mountain? That's a really interesting question. And I think in the Samoan word maunga, there are different, or I guess I would say it's a little anthropomorphic. It has, I guess in English, when we say mountain, I think of the geological formation um, of a mountain, a mountain range or a hill or a slope. Uh, in Samoan, maunga does mean, uh, you know, a geological mountain, but there's also, it's, it also is almost deferring to the majesty of that mountain as if it were a royal person or, uh, you know, a very important person. And I think that's because, um, uh, in the Samoan historical worldview, mountains are actually part of our primeval genealogy. And so not only are they geological structures and formations, not only are they conduits between the mortal realm and the, the spiritual realm, but they're literally considered our ancestors. And so we do have um, mountains and different uh, rock formations and, and ge geological formations and elements that are part of our genealogy, part of my genealogy, if you go back far enough, where I can actually trace descent from a mountain. And so I think that's kind of an, a unique and interesting way to, to kind of formulate how mountains connect with humanity, uh, in my case, or in the case of Pacific Islanders, in a very, very specific way. Yeah. 
Uh, there's also a, an honorific term in Samoan, which is langi. Uh, langi literally means sky uh, or heaven. But um, in some poetic uh, references to mountains, they're referred to as langi. Again, I think referring to the fact that they are that connection that actually touches the sky or the heavens uh, where we don't living here on, on the surface of the earth. The year before the pandemic, uh, in 2019, uh, my daughter and I, uh, I had the opportunity to, to do a lot of traveling that year and decided to take my wife and daughter um, as much as I could. And so um, the goal was to take my daughter to each of the countries uh, where our ancestors are from. And so that's why we went to Hong Kong and we went to Brazil and, and we're, you know, New Zealand and Hawaii, et cetera. Uh, and interestingly enough, I think uh, the, the tourist uh, perspective is is you always go to high places, right? There's always a lookout tower. There's a the Empire State Building, or you know, the, the, whatever whatever it is. There's a uh, the tourist site. At least one of the tourist sites is going to be a high point or the highest point in the city. And so uh, I'm thinking back to you know selfies that we took on Mount Corcovado, you know, in Rio de Janeiro and and other places like that. In the Samoan context, I think a lot of historical events are tied to ocean related sites. And so they're very sacred sites where uh, it involves a bay or a beach or a, a cliffside uh, next to the sea. That's kind of central to the worldview of the Pacific. Um, but when it comes to Chinese martial arts and lion dancing specifically, mountains are central to that. Um, the Shaolin martial arts, like the Kung Fu that I practice that we uh, teach, for example, here at the Shaolong Academy in West Valley City, uh, come from Songshan, from Mount Song, where the Shaolin Temple is still today. Um, the Wudang arts that we also teach, like Taiji, etc., uh, come from Wudang Mountain, Wudang Shan. And so those are fixtures that are not just geographic places, but they're part of that genealogy uh, that has perpetuated these arts all the way here, even across the ocean here uh, in uh, the United States here in Utah, in the foothills of, of the Ochre Mountains and, and the Wasatch Mountains. Uh, and even the name that um, our Chinese-American ancestors gave to the United States, or at least to California when they came, and originally Gamsan, the Gold Mountain, you know, was the name uh, that they gave to the place. And so with lion dancing specifically, there are two mountains that are um, that aren't just considered the derivation points or the ancestral points of lion dancing, um, but they actually are the distinction between the different styles that exist today. And so the, the style that we do here uh, is actually, we call it Fasan. And so that's from the Buddha mountain uh, there in the southwest part of Guangzhou or uh, Guangdong province. Uh, and then just across the river, about an hour drive on the other side of the valley, that mountain is called Hoksan, or the, the, the crane, the bird, the crane mountain. And so there are two different styles of Kung Fu kind of evolved in those two different regions that took on a different stylistic practices of lion dancing. And so even today, when I go to a lion dance performance or a competition, just by looking at the way the other lion looks or the way that they're performing, the stances, et cetera, the way that they drum, you can tell whether they're derived from Fasan, the Buddha mountain, or from Hoksan, from Crane Mountain, and that those uh, stylistic differences still 
uh, exist and are still very distinct today. They would say that they are derived from those specific environments, that particular mountain, the river, the animals that existed there that, you know, people watched and observed and mimicked, you know, those kinds of things actually contributed to uh, the movements and the styles that existed there. Um, those came from towards the end of the Qing dynasty. I mean, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. I don't know the exact number, um, but people from that region, from Guangzhou, from the Pearl River Delta, from Toisan, created this uh, huge and expansive diaspora of, of the Southern Chinese people. That's uh, where Hakka and Cantonese and other dialects from the South are spoken now all over the place, uh, in Chinatowns and in even small towns in, in rural America. You'll find a Chinese restaurant somewhere, and typically those folks speak Hakka or Cantonese, and um, they brought those traditions with them to uh, Hawaii. Hawaii was, um, I mean, the, the plantation system did not exist without Chinese labor. And so my family's been in Hawaii on my mom's side, on the Chinese side, uh, for six generations now. And uh, that they brought that tradition with them of martial arts. Uh, many uh, very famous uh, Kung Fu uh, artists and masters and uh, also lion dance practitioners used Hawaii as a staging ground um, to reset and create new communities and to create Kung Fu schools that brought lion dancing with them. Uh, that also that then came to the continental United States uh, and all the way here to Utah. And so that it's kind of a, if you look at it, I guess it is mountain hopping since that's what we're talking about uh, from one mountain to the next uh, on this uh, incredible eastward journey um, that still continues today. So as far as we can tell, the uh, for, there were lion dance, there were lion dance practitioners here as early as the railroad days. And so the 1860s, uh, we don't have that uh, documented in any photographs, et cetera. Um, but there are oral traditions about uh, the Bingkong Tong, which is uh, one of the benevolent societies or, or Chinese cultural associations uh, that was here from at least the 1880s. Uh, and we do know that when they had a grand opening, uh, it was mentioned that there was a lion dance, et cetera. Uh, and so from at least that time frame, at least here in Utah, um, that was not necessarily continuous to where it is today. Interestingly enough, the Bingkong Tong still exists today uh, and is the oldest uh, Chinese-run uh, or Chinese-initiated business or institution in Utah, so back from the railroad times, uh, and they're still operating today. Master Cheng Lu was the first to uh, introduce um, lion dancing here. Uh, it's been over 45 years now, I believe. Um, I don't know the math exactly. Shortly after that, um, another Kung Fu school uh, was started by Sifu Bill Smith, uh, who comes from a lineage that also comes from Fasan, from Buddha Mountain, uh, through Hawaii into the United States. And, and their school uh, in downtown Salt Lake still practices that style of lion dancing uh, as well. And so uh, my lineage is, a, I would say, a hybrid and so through uh, from Hawaii, from uh, schools like uh, Ji Young um, and uh, Master Jeffrey Lam. And so that's kind of tradition there. Um, and then coming to Utah and joining Master Cheng Lu's um, system of Shaolin Kung Fu. Uh, and so we actually perform a, a couple of different styles. Uh, Master Lu's school is the only one that we know in the Intermountain West that uh, performs a closed mouth lion. And so most, a lot of people are familiar with the lion that 
can you know open and close his mouth and blink its eyes. Uh, but there is an older tradition before that um, where the lion is it's more of a mask kind of a thing that doesn't move uh, and it has a much more pugilistic or it's much more you can tell that it's rooted in fighting that the you know the, the aesthetics of it don't look like a real cat or a lion uh, like the modern ones do they look really realistic and they're very coordinated to look like an animal um, the older styles that are really really rooted in the martial arts are very much focused in the training in the stances and in using the arms you know as weapons and the, i think the symbolism maybe is a little more rich there because you look at it and you say hmm that doesn't look like a lion at all you know but you have to get into it into the history and learn a little more the nuance that way but uh, i would say that yeah lion dancing has a, a pretty long tradition here in the state of utah and um, the 18 70s and 1880s is probably the first um, documented or the first uh, acknowledged uh, roots of lion dancing here in Utah. Um, the martial arts lion dance um, are not just about physical movement and stances. They are uh, deeply rooted in um, like a Chinese philosophies, right? Oh, yeah. Cantonese philosophies. What are philosophies do you teach your um, students? As much as we focus on uh, technique and correct actions and, and effective strikes and things like that for self-defense, right? Um, the root of all of that really is balance. And I think that's one of the philosophies that are taught that really are root that are the basis or the foundation uh, of martial arts and lion dancing as well that the same uh, power that could be used to hurt people, um, you also have to learn then to heal, right? And if you're gonna exert yourself, you have to know what your limits are and you have to know uh, how to create balance in what you're doing so that you're not uh, overly aggressive or not overly passive. There, there is this uh, thin line uh, that has to be learned. And so in the course of a lion dance performance, you'll see every emotion performed by the lion uh, from being completely asleep to starting to wake up and, and the, the player in the back will actually move their arms under the costume to mimic the actual breathing uh, and then he'll wake up slowly and his eyes will open and close and and, and you'll go from being totally motionless and sleeping uh, to leaping and jumping and standing on each other's shoulder I mean there's uh, the full gamut of that emotion which I think uh, shares that balance as well of of motionless to motion and inertia and momentum and everything in between. And I think in teaching students, uh, that's one of the things that a lot of people bring their children or their, their kids to the school because they want them to learn discipline or they want them to be more attentive in school or they want them to learn uh, dedication or time management. And those things are all taught within the martial arts, but I still think it boils down to having a sense of balance and being able to apply your attention to the tasks that you're doing at the right time, in the right place, uh, and reserving maybe some of your more boisterous, uh, you know, tendencies or, you know, something that would distract you or distractions uh, for another time in another place. And so I think even just as you said, uh, it may look on the outside uh, like kicking and punching and jumping, uh, but really there is a philosophical balance to all of that. 
Well, yeah. So I think it's much more than just a, a movement, right? <laughs> um, who are your students? Do you get a lot of uh, like Asian students or students in general? I think American a, students too. Yeah, there's a lot of um, interest from uh, students of all ethnicities and races. Uh, with Jungheng Lion Dance Club, uh, we have. Uh, currently, all of our members are Asian American, mostly Chinese American and Vietnamese American. In the Kung Fu School Shaolong Academy, uh, I would say the majority of those in the youth class are, like my daughters, are mixed uh, with part Asian ancestry, which I think is really interesting too. And and I'm not sure that uh, the kids who are my daughter's age, you know, seven, eleven years old, necessarily see it as. Um, an identity affirming kind of experience. Uh, for me, it definitely was because I was, as I mentioned, my dad spoke Samoan. Uh, I was raised very, uh, Sam, very comfortable in the Samoan space. Whereas on my mom's side of the family, uh, they had been in Hawaii for generations and generations. They were more like a local Hawaii residents than they were. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't uh, relate to or, or didn't resonate as much. Uh, with people who I met who had come straight from China, for example, they were very different. It seemed very um, foreign to me, uh, even though my eyes look like theirs and I like the same foods and my family comes from the same place. But there was a generational difference um, of people of my family living in Hawaii uh, in a very local, uh, you know, mixed ethnic, um, interfaith, multi-ethnic kind of community. Um, that was very different. And so for me, uh, learning from Master Cheng Lu and learning those new words and getting corrected on my tones because I'm terrible at pronouncing these new words, that provided me with uh, this uh, cultural and linguistic connection to my grandmother's land that I didn't actually grow up with. And so I'm not sure that that's even our objective for teaching today. I think it's just a natural byproduct of that. And if you are Asian American, if you are Chinese American, even separated by generations, even separated by this geographic distance, I think there is something in the process of learning uh, these themes and these movements and these motions and learning the history and the stories that come along with them uh, that does affirm identity. And I, I think that's a pretty cool thing too. I, I completely understand, uh, you know, um, the gap between Asian Americans who have lived here for generations and uh, the newer immigrants. I have lived here for about 17 years now in the U.S. I'm not an immigrant yet, <laughs> so uh, I'm still an international uh, faculty member here at Westminster. Uh, yeah, I can see what you meant, right? The, yeah. the big difference between um, Chinese Americans who have lived here for seven, eight generations and the 0.5 generation right. Chinese Americans. Uh, and in the newer um, Chinese American community, we say that uh, the older generations of uh, Chinese immigrants are more Chinese. Sure than Chinese um, because they have uh, maintained a lot of uh, the Chinese traditions that are disappearing or that has already lost. 
uh, in over these seven generations of time, right? Because of um, modernization and things like that. I think that I think what you said really resonates with me as well, um, because I've never lived uh, in Hong Kong. I've only visited there. I've only heard stories, etc. Uh, those things that I did learn from my grandmother, who's who's no longer with us here, uh, are 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 truly treasures. And I think even some of those things that I don't intellectually understand, uh, I still feel the need to present incense at the graves. I still feel the need to set up the altar in Chinese New Year Eve uh, and make sure that my daughters, who have even less of a of a knowledge base than I did, um, you know, even though it. I don't know. It's it's hard to say that it's purely performative. It's just something that we do because I don't have as much background or understanding of why we do it. But it's almost a sense of, of the why uh, is not as important. Uh, when I look at some of those traditions, uh, what's most important is that I'm continuing it because I inherited that from my grandmother who inherited that from her grandmother. So how who knows how long back? And just like you mentioned, even if it's seven, eight generations later, there are still some core things that these families have maintained and kept up. And there's got to be a reason for that. If it didn't serve a purpose or it, or if it was uh, too extraneous or, or had no relevance, um, those are things that people tend to let go of. And so if these are things that we're still doing, you know, six, seven, eight generations later, there's got to be something to it. And I think maybe that's part of the journey uh, my own journey is to then kind of figure out why. Uh, that cultural permanence happens with some things and not others. And I think that only adds to the value and adds to uh, the experience. You know? I'm a homebody, so mountains are typically a little distant or require uh, some, some planning and transportation to get there. Uh, but I do enjoy time in the mountains. And so we, not too long ago, we were hiking at uh, Donut Falls, which some people wouldn't say is the mountains, really. It's just up this canyon here, not too far. Pretty convenient. But as I mentioned, yeah, when we do travel, there is something that pulls you to go to these high places, typically mountains, uh, if nothing more than the, for the view, uh, but for the experience of hiking. Uh, again, I'm not a huge hiker. I would consider myself more... Uh, of an ocean person that my connection is always to water uh, even here in Utah um, you know with the uh, the Hawaiian Outrigger Canoe Club uh, that was started out of Great Salt Lake uh, I own I purchased and, and got my own during the pandemic when the club wasn't practicing uh, I still needed to be on the water and so we bought our own canoe uh, went drove all 11 hours out to pick it up from Seattle and uh, and brought it back and so my daughters and, and I could still be out on the lakes and the Great Salt Lake is not a perfect analog for the ocean, but it's it's fairly close. And definitely when, when I am back in the Pacific, um, yeah, our time is spent at the ocean, I would say more so than in the mountains. If you look at it, the Pacific Islands are are the tops of, of mountains whose bases are under the sea. And so really uh, just being on that island is being uh, on a mountain. And as I mentioned, there are you know, there is a deference towards mountains as, as this sacred site, uh, these sacred uh, portals between, uh, you know, the ancestors and the gods and, and the, the space of humans here. And so that's always uh, something that's noted. We have 
you know, a really neat legend about uh, a time when the son uh, was too lazy to do his job uh, and just went through the motions and just kind of flew across the sky once a day and gave people only a couple of hours to get their chores done and to do what they needed to do. Uh, and so one of our great cultural heroes uh, who actually stood on top of a mountain in Samoa called Maunga Fito uh, and threw a big lasso up and, and caught the sun uh, to slow him down into this constant orbit that it continues to run on today. And, and so again, that just the sight of that mountain being the place uh, that was closest to the sky uh, where he could access the sun uh, just underlines again just that that underlying theme of mountains as being special places and not just inert geographic or geologic objects. That's a great story. Um, you mentioned the, your daughter. Um, I'm curious to know, uh, like, uh, how does she recognize herself as a school? Um, you know, does she recognize herself as someone? Uh, Portuguese, um, Cantonese, is she comfortable with her multiple identities? I love that question because that's something that my wife and I, even before we had kids, I think we talked uh, quite a bit about because we both experienced uh, this dynamic at, at no fault of, of anyone else, really, um, of feeling like we didn't quite walk in both worlds or weren't fully accepted in both sides. And she came to Brazil um, not speaking any English, et cetera, and so uh, not feeling uh, really accepted by American society at that point. And, um, and then at the same time, going back to Brazil and having cousins and other people talk about, well, how, you know, how American you are and, and not quite as Brazilian as you used to be or, or like the rest of us. Uh, and um, I was very blessed that my parents never emphasized one over the other. My dad was Samoan. He was not Chinese, but he paid for us. He supported us. He went with us to Chinatown, San Francisco. Uh, he encouraged and supported us continuing some of those traditions, uh, you know, uh, from my mom's side of the family uh, and vice versa. And so I always felt like I was Asian American and Pacific Islander American. Uh, and if other people questioned that, that was their problem, not mine. And so I really wanted my daughters, especially now adding a, a Latina uh, influence and, and culture into their identities, um, making sure that's a part of them that they feel whole and not having to choose one over the other. So I, we, uh, to your question, I think she uh, reflects all of them at different times. And so um, she chooses to go by her Samoan name, Moana, uh, at school. Uh, but in uh, lion dancing and martial arts, uh, she likes to go by her Chinese name, Guailan. And so um, her, her name is Gabriele, which is from Brazil or Portuguese name. It's a family name in my wife's family. Uh, Leala Imoana Lua, which is Samoan. Uh, Guailan, which is Cantonese. And then our, they, they have both of our last names. And so I think just embedding that into their names and having them learn that from when they're born, uh, hopefully that's one way that we can instill that they're all of these things together. They are the sum of their ancestries and, and not just, you know, having to choose a one or the other. But yeah, interestingly enough, both my daughters have are named after Kung Fu masters as well. So from Futsan, from Buddha Mountain, 
uh, which is uh, and their family names as well. Uh, my grandpa's my maternal grandfather uh, comes from a line of very famous uh, martial artists there from from southern China and Mok um, uh, Lan and uh, Yim Wing Chun are two female martial artists who are actually uh, progenitors. They're ancestresses of martial arts styles and uh, Mok Lan uh, started the first uh, all women lion dance club uh, drumming etc at a time in the 1890s uh, it was really frowned upon in a lot of circles it was considered a man's game uh, and she beat the men at their own game and not only that started a school just for women that would compete and and keep up with everyone and and actually developed a lot of uh, new cool techniques and and different styles uh, in lion dancing and kung fu so i wanted those uh, identities and those uh, shared histories to be integrated into my girls' lives and, and did it through a name, which is connected to a story, which is connected to a mountain. Uh, I don't, it's kind of cool. I'm kind of proud of myself for that. <laughs> it's, my kids are fortunate to attend a, a Pacific Islander a charter school uh, in West Valley. And so um, the majority of the students there uh, are uh, from a from a suburban or urban American uh, Pacific Islander context. So I think that, that there is a level of sameness there. Uh, and we also live in West Valley, which is a minority majority city with uh, you know, a very large uh, non-white population. So they, they see themselves reflected when we go to Walmart or the mall or the movies uh, in the community. Uh, right now in this time, especially with, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of fervor about uh, you know, Asian American or, or hate crimes and hate speech directed towards Asian Americans, uh, blame for uh, COVID-19 and everything uh, that's associated with uh, that pandemic as well. Fortunately, they haven't brought that up or it hasn't become too much of a conversation. But as a parent, as an inexperienced parent, I feel like that that's coming for sure. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how to frame it. I haven't sat them down and had a specific talk, for example. Uh, but we do, uh, as questions come up, uh, I feel like it's my job to answer them uh, to the best of my ability. And uh, I feel like it's an interesting dynamic because my daughters uh, phenotypically or physically are very uh, racially ambiguous. And so if you, uh, most people, when they see them, don't immediately say, oh, yeah, you're Asian American or, yeah, you're Latina or, yeah, you know, they're they're this uh, mix that's just vague enough to say, like, yeah, you're something ethnic, but I'm not sure where to place you. I think that's how a lot of people feel. And for that reason, I think they're uh, it's not as black and white for them because I think they see themselves reflected in other communities as well. And so when we talk about, well, Asians this or Latinos this or Samoans this. For them, it's a little deeper than just what you look like. Uh, and so uh, I think that's a really interesting conversation. And one that the, their, their charter school they go to, uh, Mana Academy in West Valley, I think is doing a really, really good job at. Uh, because there are uh, historical tensions between different groups and different uh, demographics. There are definitely internal and external uh, dynamics and um, worldviews and, and perceptions uh, and this is a school environment where uh, those things aren't dismissed at the door. They're openly discussed and they're part of social studies and they're part of history and they're part of learning uh, to get along uh, and see each other for who they are uh, rather than 
uh, what historical what historical occurrences or, or conflicts may have occurred between different kinds of people. So, yeah, maybe I'm relying on their school to do a lot of that for me. Uh, I'm sure as my kids get older and experience more of life, you know, at, at this point, their life, as you mentioned, is framed within the life that my wife and I provide for them. Their experiences, where they go, who they meet, who they hang out with, is all really dictated, you know, by us. Uh, and they happen to be people who um, agree with us or who are, are more akin to our uh, persuasions and, and beliefs, etc. But as, yeah, as my daughters grow and I explore the world, and uh, I will encourage them to do that. I'm sure more of those conversations. How does that manifest in your work on the city council? That's an awesome question because I feel like uh, even though West Valley City is a minority majority city and you know has the largest Pacific Islander population in, in the state, second largest Asian American uh, population in the state, etc., uh, that diversity isn't necessarily reflected in our uh, city officials or, or higher levels of government. And so how that manifests in my work uh, is that, uh, number one, I don't feel... I do feel accountable to people, uh, but I don't feel uh, that I need to be a representative uh, for Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders. I'm there to kick ass, do a good job, and uh, and people will see the works uh, by the fruits uh, that are born there. Uh, but I do feel it is my job to uh, use this position to facilitate opportunities for people who are underrepresented in government. I don't want to be the only one. I'm happy to be the first one there, but I don't want to be the only one. That's not the goal. And so I'm able to, now that I am an, an elected city official, I can make official nominations to different commissions or boards and committees so that folks in the community can participate. Uh, and even if they don't see themselves as an elected official or a government or a political person, um, they can make a difference and, and kind of learn the nuts and bolts. And, and maybe that will spark them. Uh, to run for an office later on, or, or maybe get appointed for another position in the government, etc. So that's a big one for me, uh, is facilitating uh, so that I'm not the only, so I'm working alongside people uh, and when opportunities arise and making opportunities. So myself uh, and another uh, Asian American uh, there from West Valley, Kevin Wynn, uh, we chair the Healthy West Valley Initiative, which just started off in our, our mutual, we both work for the health department, and we just have a mutual interest in health. He's also one of our uh, lion dance performers uh, as well with the club. Um, but started this group and got together uh, different pastors in the community, trusted community leaders, uh, advocates, uh, and all of the healthcare providers that serve West Valley City, including, uh, you know, Intermountain and, you know, the big name, St. Mark's, et cetera. And what started off as an informal group uh, to really just focus on improving health and quality of life in West Valley uh, turned into something that, uh, because of my role with the city, we were able to integrate into, and now we have a website on the city website. We have support for the events that we do from the city. Uh, we're able to conduct, you know, some pandemic uh, response activities uh, sponsored by the city, et cetera. Uh, and now the city sees this value in this community-based, very ethnically diverse group as well, I should mention. And are now we are looking at this becoming an actual commission part of West Valley city government. Uh, and so I think that's a really uh, good example of how uh, grassroots 
um, even folks who are underserved or underrepresented, et cetera, through these channels that, uh, and again, this is not me uh, as an individual, but through our elected officials and through our, our government officials and, and civic leaders, uh, we can take those kinds of initiatives and those uh, communities and bring them into um, areas where we can make policy changes institutionally or more systematic changes, uh, which are improvements. And so uh, that diversity, it's not just because we need more diversity so that we look like the rest of the city. Uh, that's great. But the fact of the matter is the ethnically and racially uh, underserved and underrepresented folks in the community are amazing. There's awesome human potential. There's so much capital there that we just haven't tapped into. And, and I think uh, if we believe in a government that is for the people and by the people, uh, by definition, it should reflect those people. And I think we're, we're in, we're taking baby steps in that direction. And uh, it's a generational issue for sure. But I, I, that's what I see my role as more, more so than a representative, because there's so many voices and uh, to be able to, to elevate every single voice, including those that I don't necessarily agree with, that's a challenge. Like, I'll say that straight up. That's, it's an impossible challenge to represent every possible voice that's out there. But to be able to facilitate opportunities to engage, that's what I really feel my, my role is as an elected official. I love what you said about uh, the diverse you know, ethnic groups living in the West Valley and in the rest of Utah. They have so much. They have so much to offer, but and I'm also very glad that you mentioned uh, health. Um, I'm curious about uh, how health is defined, and your council is the nature contact a part of uh, the conversations and your plans and initiatives, because uh, you know we all live so close to trails, right? Access to the mountains. There's um, Research shows uh, that nature contact is a big part of uh, um, health, including public health. So how is health defined at your council? What are the conversations around um, nature contact being part of health? West Valley City is the second biggest city population-wise in the state, but it's a landlocked city, meaning we're... Uh, we don't quite touch uh, the Great Salt Lake. We get close. And we don't quite touch the Ochre Mountains. We get pretty close. There has been a, a very conscious effort to preserve uh, wildlife and uh, areas, spaces that you can engage uh, with wildlife, especially along the Jordan River corridor, et cetera. Um, because West Valley City is such a, a rapidly growing city, uh, you look at even, you know, the Mountain View Corridor, that, which is basically a new freeway that's going up on the west side. Amidst all of that, quote unquote, urban development, we have dozens of miles of trails, you know, along the Jordan River. And, and even within there's one right uh, by my neighborhood in the canal uh, where you would never uh, necessarily imagine, you know, a nature trail, for example. It's an urban trail. But those kinds of opportunities do exist. And, and I think that the city uh, tries to preserve as much of that uh, as you can. We uh, kind of, as a joke, had a proposal of annexing a piece of magna so that we could reach a mountain and have a mountainside trail. And, you know, that, that was more tongue in cheek than it was 
uh, realistic, but um, I think that does show that people are at least thinking about it, you know, and, and making sure that uh, they're, even though we're not necessarily in the wilderness, that there are still areas there, you know, planting uh, mulberry trees or, or whatever those, uh, the monarch butterflies, you know, what they eat. I, I don't think it's mulberry. I think I said that wrong, but, you know, and and, um, and creating habitat, micro habitats uh, for those type of things and making sure that uh, uh, there are areas for uh, bird watching and things like that. Uh, the wetlands, as I mentioned, we don't quite, uh, the city limits doesn't quite extend to the Great Salt Lake, uh, but does include quite a bit of wetlands just south of the Great Salt Lake. Uh, and that's a huge area for us for preservation, uh, for making sure that there's responsible development around that and preserving those areas. We're working on a project now that's a park, um, you know, with the boardwalk and type thing where people can engage with that en environment uh, without just throwing cement and asphalt on top of, of all of the wild areas that are left. Thanks, Jake, for sharing his stories and thank you for tuning in. Our next guest will be Kevin Wen. Kevin grew up in West Valley. He is currently a graduate student at the University of Utah studying public health. He is also a squad leader and a rescue diver with Salt Lake's search and rescue team. And he holds an active role in many different organizations. We are looking forward to seeing you at the community building event on June 26th. Jake's dance group will need a line dance blessing ceremony. Thanks to the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Programs for supporting the project with a seed grant. We really do hope you can join us on June 26th at Fitz Park for the get together with the storytellers, uh, with a bunch of other people. And Jake will be there with the rest of the Lion Dance crew so you can see that performance as well. Um, we'll include links to, to these organizations and also links to RSVP for um, for the events on, on the website, you can find that at podcast.mountainresearch.org. In the meantime, um, thanks to Shomei for inviting us to be involved in this project. Thanks to Westminster College. Thanks to Jeff Nichols for being my co-director. And thanks to you all for listening. And finally, thanks to Pixie and the Partygrass Boys for our theme music. As Naomi used to say, they are awesome. You should check them out. Bye. Before